Judges 10, 6-16. It's entitled Further Disobedience and Oppression. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, gods of Syria, gods of Sidon, gods of Moab, gods of the Ammonites, gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against, fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonites also, or Sidonites also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped against them. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship you. And we ask now as we come to the reading of your word and expounding it, that you open our hearts and minds to receive it and show us how we should be living for you. In Jesus' name. This morning's sermon is entitled, Who is the Man? Our last look at Judges introduced a turning point with the way the judges are raised up and appointed. Instead of being raised up by God in response to a cry for salvation, the Israelites turned to someone who essentially appointed themselves to the role. We also saw with Gideon that when the cry for salvation went up, God didn't immediately raise up the rescuer. Instead, he sent a prophet to preach to them that they needed to know why they needed rescuing before he would raise up the judge who would both rescue and lead them. In both of these episodes of Israel's history, we see the people taking a definitive turn for the worse. One indicator of this is that after Gideon, the judges' accounts close not with a reference to the land having peace for X number of years, but only with a notice about how long the judge led Israel. In the second half of Judges, God withholds his gift of peace in response to the willful rejection of the covenant relationship that would have guaranteed peace. But even in this dark period of Israel's history, 
the light of God's gracious presence and provision never went out. God continually sought to bring his people back into relationship with himself and the true peace he longed for them to have. Even though it seems God's patience with Israel has been exhausted, his inexhaustible love for his people compels him to act again and again on their behalf, as we will see throughout the rest of the accounts of the judges. But before we move on to see what the next judge will teach us about the gospel and ourselves, let's pause and examine this turning point in greater detail. We'll begin by looking at where the people of Israel are at at this point, what it means for them and what God wants from them. So turning to verses 6 to 8 of chapter 10. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. We see that again the Israelites have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord and turned to the idols of the surrounding nations, forsaking God. His covenant with them and the law, particularly the first three commandments as we see from Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the, on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Israelites are bowing down to and worshipping the gods of the nations around them. They are putting these gods ahead of the Lord and serving them instead. And as we see in Judges 10 verse 7, God was angry. So angry, he sold them into the hands of those nations. In other words, Israel became enslaved to those nations. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, you'd think Israel would have learned their lesson and not want to be enslaved again. But these verses tell us they haven't. Time and again, the Israelites turn to idolatry and end up enslaved. Verses 7 to 8 remind us, show us, that idolatry leads to enslavement. But it's interesting to note that not only does idolatry lead to slavery, but slavery leads to idolatry. You'd think if something led you to being enslaved, you would want to stop following it, doing it, or worshipping it. But the opposite happens. Despite pain and suffering, Israel continues to worship the Baals. Paul Tripp puts it this way. We all give our hearts to something. The question is, to whom or what? We were never hardwired to be free, if by freedom we mean an independent, self-sufficient life. 
We were created by God to be connected to something vastly bigger than ourselves. We were designed to have our lives organized and directed by an agenda that is bigger than our truncated personal desires and goals. We were carefully built by God to have every aspect of our personhood connected to him and his plans for us. And when we reject him, we don't live autonomously. We replace him with something or something, someone else. And it's the same with us today, just as it was for the Israelites. We have become enslaved by the things we idolize and worship. We want more of them. And this leads us further into idolatry. It's a form of addiction. When someone becomes addicted to something, they need more of it. They become enslaved to it. Human nature tells us that when an idol leads us into slavery, what we need is more of that idol. The Israelites' idolatry led to their slavery, and in turn their slavery led them further into idolatry. Paul writes of the trap of idolatry in Romans 1 verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul reveals the outcome of idolatry in the following verse. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. But turning back to Judges 10 verse 7, we see exactly what happened to the Israelites. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Verse 7 tells us it is the Lord, God himself, who sold the Israelites into slavery. And this isn't the first time either. In Judges chapter 3, God sold the Israelites into the hands of Cush and Rishathaim. In chapter 4, God sold the Israelites into the hands of Jabin and Sisera. Sold is a strong word. Anyone who's been to an auction knows this. An item comes up for sale. Increasing bids are made until the other bidders are outbid. And then the auctioneer bangs his hammer and yells, sold. It's definitive, decisive, unconditional. There's no going back. Once the hammer has fallen and the sale is made, it's over. The seller gets their money and the buyer gets ownership, meaning the new owner can do whatever they want to that item. And that's exactly what happens when the Israelites are sold into the hands of their enemies. Their enemies become their masters and oppress them. However, unlike an auction, in each of the cases recorded in Judges where God sold the Israelites, it doesn't mean that God gave up on the Israelites. It doesn't mean he abandoned them or nullified his promises to them. It means God stopped protecting them in some way. Sold means God let the things the Israelites were serving dominate them and own them. Timothy Keller puts it this way, What we see in these verses is that idolatry and slavery go hand in hand. Idolatry leads to slavery and slavery leads to idolatry. God says to the person who worships money, If you want to live for money instead of me, then money will rule your life. If you want to live for popularity instead of me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you want another God, go ahead. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving and guiding and enlightening you. For turning away, the Israelites are handed over, as verse 8 puts it, to be crushed and oppressed. 
to be enslaved and ruled by their enemies. And this time the oppression is the worst the Israelites have endured. They are shattered. The oppression is lengthy, 18 years. It is universal. Tribes on both sides of the Jordan are oppressed. Even the strong tribes, Judah and Ephraim. In verse 10, as we've seen in previous cycles, when the Israelites have had enough of the enslavement, they cry out to God for rescue. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. But similarly to chapter 6, God doesn't immediately provide a rescuer. In chapter 6, God sent a prophet to preach to the Israelites before raising up Gideon to rescue them. But here, God's response is even more unexpected and it's harsh. In verses 11 and 12, God tells the Israelites he has saved them time and time again. And time and time again, they have forsaken him and served other gods. Then in a crushing blow, God tells them, I will no longer save you. But it's more than refusing to save them. Looking at verses 13 and 14, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. God tells the Israelites he's not going to save them and instead they should call on the idols they have been worshipping to save them. Michael Wilcox says in the message of Judges, the Lord says to them, I know what this cry of yours is. It's merely a cry for help, which might just as well be addressed to the Baals as it is to me. God is, God is saying to the Israelites, I know your request is one of a weak party to a stronger party, asking that they alleviate your misery. God tells the Israelites to ask the gods they have been following because he knows their repentance is not real. The Israelites want to be physically freed from the oppression and the consequences of their idolatry, but spiritually their hearts don't. Their cry to God was not a genuine cry of repentance. Cheryl Brown says the Israelites' cry was not a cry of genuine repentance. It was a sorry for, not a sorry that. Oh, sorry, it was not a sorry for, but a sorry that. <laughs> repentance is a heartfelt conviction and a hatred of what was done, regardless of whether it caused trouble or not. The Israelites are sorry for the consequences of their sin, but they're not really sorry for their sin. And what we're seeing here is that the Israelites are turning from idolatry in an idolatrous way. Their hearts have been so hardened by the world around them, they are treating God as if he was just another one of their idols. Their thinking is, if we push the right buttons, thanks Dirk, if we do the right things, if we make the right sacrifices, God will come and save us. God knows this. And his response to, the, to, to them tells them their hearts are not in their rep repentance. God tells them they are merely going through the motions. Their repentance is not heartfelt. They are not truly sorry for their sin. Looking at verses 15 and 16, we see that the Israelites understand what God's response meant. And they realized this and truly repented. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. 
Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The Israelites' response and their actions show they have had a change of heart. They are putting their trust, their faith in God, whether he saves them or not. Their response shows they understand that they have broken the covenant and deserve to suffer the consequence of this. They understand that God is under no obligation to rescue them, nor can they persuade him to do so. In verses 13 and 14, the Israelites were focused on their physical plight and comfort. But in verses 15 and 16, they understand God is under no obligation to fix them and remove their trouble. Their response in these two verses means they are saying to God, we want you even if it means we are going to keep suffering, although we'd, we'd prefer not to. Why is this a sign of real faith, a sign of true repentance? If we say to God, I want you because I want or need you to give me X, we are revealing that X is our real ultimate God. But when we say we want God regardless of whether he gives us X, Y, or Z, then we are making God our true God again. The other point coming out of these verses is that by getting rid of their foreign gods, the Israelites showed they were going beneath the surface to change their hearts, not just their outward behaviors. True repentance gets beneath the surface. It gets under the skin and changes hearts and attitudes. True repentance doesn't just focus on behavior, but focuses on motives. From this we see there are two signs of real repentance. First, a sorrow for sin rather than just for its consequences. And second, a sorrow over idolatrous motives, not just behavioral change. God is not looking for a superficial change of words, but for a true change of heart. And he recognized this in Israel's penitential action. Israel's change of heart moved the Lord to a change of heart, or at least to defer to his compassionate side and respond with mercy and act to save his people. Having truly repented, Israel assembles at Mizpah, prepares for battle and to be freed of the enemy oppressing them. But they are unsure who will rescue them and lead them to victory. So they ask, as we see in verse 18, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so the, set is, is, so the scene is set for the rescuer to enter. Who will this rescuer be? This will be revealed in the next chapters. Today I want, to look, want you to look to the Savior we know God provided. His name is Jesus. God said in Isaiah 59 verse 16, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought them salvation and his righteousness upheld him. I'm going to repeat that verse again but slightly differently. He, that is God, saw that there was no man, no human capable of providing redemption and wondered that there was no one to intercede, 
no human capable of interceding on man's behalf. Then his, that's God's, own arm, God's own actions and interventions brought him, that is man or us, salvation. And his, that is God's or Christ's, righteousness upheld him, man. In John 1 verse 29 we read, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So first notice the great love God has for his people. Notice the heart of God in that verse from Isaiah 59. Because of his love for his people, God did not like seeing the misery and suffering of his people at the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines. God doesn't want to see us suffer. He doesn't want us to reap the consequences for our actions. Our pains in life pain our God. He doesn't sit in heaven and say, See, I told you so. Because of the pain of his people, God will send them a deliverer. But there needs to be true repentance. When we fall through weakness and sin or take the right in our hands and are truly repentant, we should not despair, but instead trust in God's mercy. What will happen when there's true repentance? Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism that we read earlier has the answer. What's involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. The dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. This means we are internally and externally fleeing from sin. This is the dying away of the old self that we confess in question and answer 89. And it positively leads to the coming to life of the new self. It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. Repentance is gratitude and it's the answer to God's grace and out of this the good works will flow. We confess what do we do that is good? Only that which arises out of true faith conforms to God's law and is done for his glory and not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. Our answer should always be love, repentance, reformation, endurance, patience. And we can because we have peace in Jesus. Judges 10 teaches us that we are getting smarter with all the technology and research available to us, but we are also becoming more ignorant with the idols we serve. Look at the world around us. Look at what's happened in the last few weeks. Banks in the US are insolvent and closed. Others in Switzerland needed to be bailed out. Criminal gangs are running rampant and waging turf wars and murderous vendettas and us with seeming impunity from prosecution. People are in despair. Where is our saviour? The further we move away from the Lord, the less we understand that only God gives wisdom in his word and salvation in Christ alone. The gospel brings us the Christ in image, God from God, who died for the sake of us, a mediator that died for our sins. Judges 10 has a wonderful message for us. God could tell us that he gave us his laws and told us that we would suffer for disobeying those laws. 
God could sit in heaven and say, see, I told you so. He could watch us all suffer eternal punishment for our idolatrous ways. But the pain of his creation pains our God. So much so that God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we could be delivered from our evil ways. His love for us is to cause us to desire him alone and put away our idols. God deeply loves us, but we cannot expect a sacrifice for sins when we willfully reject the ways of our God. Truly repent today. Give up your idols today. Love and serve the Lord looking for the salvation to be revealed. Matthew Henry said, Let us cast ourselves on the mercy of God our Saviour. Humble ourselves under his hand. Seek deliverance from the powers of darkness. Separate ourselves from sin and from occasions of it. Use the means of grace diligently and wait for the Lord's time. And so we shall certainly rejoice in his mercy. Look to Jesus. He is coming. Amen.